We're reading Psalm 2 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, as we turn now to the preaching of your word, Father, I pray that you will help us to see you and your goodness in your word this morning. Father, help us to have a heart, turn our hearts, fill our hearts with deep affection for you. Remove all the vices and the desires for the ways of this world. Father, help us to see what is good and right. Help us to see Christ this morning. Father, I pray that you will build up your church in the truth of your word, that nothing else will be pointed at or desired in this church except the truthfulness of Christ being our Lord and Savior. Father, use this time now for your glory as you build us up. May your name be worshipped and adored. Father, help me to not speak in air, but to be your mouthpiece, to be your instrument this morning for your people. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So this morning we are in Psalm 2 in our summer series in the Psalms. Last week we began in Psalm 1 as an introduction to the Psalms. And you'll remember I said that Psalm 2 is part of the introduction to the Psalter. There was a time when Psalm 2 was considered a continuation of Psalm 1. Early manuscripts of the Talmud, which is sort of like the Hebrew commentary of the Old Testament, included Psalm 2 as part of Psalm 1. And Greek manuscripts of the New Testament also included Psalm 2 as Psalm 1. So think of today as part 2 of the introduction to the book 
of Psalms. Psalm 2, like Psalm 1, has no subtitle, which is different than most of the rest of the Psalms. Psalm 1 begins with a blessing, and you'll notice that Psalm 2 ends with one. And it appears as they are read together, or like what we're doing, we read Psalm 1 last week and we're reading Psalm 2 this week, the blessing of the righteous is compared with the way of sinners. In Psalm 1, we were told of how it is for those who who delight and meditate, who submit their lives to the law of the Lord. Now, your Bible most likely has the Lord there in Psalm 1 in small caps. In Psalm 1, verse 2, and again in verse 6. And it's also throughout Psalm 2. Anytime that you see the Lord in small caps, it signifies the name of God in Hebrew, Yahweh. This is God. It's attributed to God the Father in the Trinity. So those who submit to the law of Yahweh are blessed. They're happy. They become like a tree by the water. Yahweh knows He establishes their way. But you'll remember in Psalm 1 that it's, it's singular. It's a singular psalm. What I mean by that is that it's about the individual. Blessed, happy is the man. The two ways are then considered in the psalm. And look at how Psalm 2, though, begins. It begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? We have the two ways that were introduced in Psalm 1 being carried over into Psalm 2. The way of sinners, speaking of individuals in Psalm 1, has now become a worldwide rebellion against God, against Yahweh. All the people turned against God. It's no longer the individual, it's the whole world. Further expanding on the way of sinners, we learn that the way of sinners is not passive. It's not a passive way. It's an active rebellion toward God. Charles Spurgeon says Psalm 2 describes the hatred of human nature against God. Now notice that it's not only against Yahweh is it? In verse 2, this rage, this rebellion against God that is worldwide is against the Lord and it's against His anointed. Your Bible most likely should have His anointed capitalized. It's translated that way for the Hebrew word Mashiach. That's where we get our word Messiah. The Greek translation of Mashiach is Christos or Christ. The way of sinners is getting more and more clearer for us as a way that is against Yahweh and against Christ. And then in Psalm 2, after we're told of this worldwide rebellion, the scene changes 
to the throne room of God where the Father decrees that His anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who is His begotten Son, is given dominion over all the earth. This psalm is a magnificent, glorious psalm about Christ. This Christ is seen as God's King. Another commentator says in in Psalm 1, we're told of our duty to submit to God's Word and the moral distinction between the righteous and the way of sinners. And now in Psalm 2, it's evangelical, meaning it shows us our Savior. So we go from the two ways to now this Savior that the world needs. At the end of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in God's Son, in the Messiah, in Christ. As Christians, we know that this is a royal psalm, or some would call it a messianic psalm that points to Jesus Christ. Now we don't just assume this. Keep your place in Psalm 2 and if you will turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 24. Now here in Acts chapter 4 we have Peter and John who have just been released from the Sanhedrin after being questioned. And in verse 24, they quote Psalm 2. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. And notice who they say His anointed is in the next verse, in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. Now this isn't the only place in the New Testament where Psalm 2 is mentioned. In fact, you remember last week I told you that the Psalms is quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 32, it says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Hebrew writer also applied Psalm 2, verse 7, to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5, and again in chapter 5, verse 5. In Hebrews 1, verse 5, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. 
Hebrews 5 says the same thing. If we were to turn to the book of Revelation, there we see Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We read that for the call to worship this morning in chapter 1, verse 5. He rules the nations with an iron scepter. He rules the nations. So while Psalm 2 does not point or mention Jesus Christ specifically, we know that God points us to Christ who fulfills this psalm. Now, like most cases in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, there is an immediate fulfillment, and then there is an ultimate fulfillment. King David is the writer of this psalm. That's what Luke told us in Acts 4. The immediate context is David is writing about a king whom God installs to have dominion over the enemies of Israel. And God did do that. The line of David continued for generations after David. There was an immediate context. But that's not the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. Notice back in verse 8 of Psalm 2, the dominion of God's Son extends to the ends of the earth. To the end of the earth. No king in the Old Testament had a kingdom that went to the end of the earth. Jewish interpreters understood this. They considered this psalm as being prophecy for the coming Messiah. The psalm over the centuries has been used to argue whether Jesus is the Christ. Does Christ fulfill this psalm? As Christians, we see that Jesus Christ is the Anointed One. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 tell us that we are to submit to God's Word, to His law. And the grace of the Gospel comes through Jesus Christ. So when we read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together, we have the entire Christian faith in these psalms. We have our whole world view as Christians. Without Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we would read the psalms as religious poetry. But together with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they tell us that the righteous person in Psalm 1 is clearly seen as the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 2. The happy, the blessed, are those who take refuge in Him. Judgment will not fall upon those who take refuge in Him. In Jesus Christ. Loving the Son brings true happiness, blessedness. So the theme becomes clear. Those who submit to God's Word in Psalm 1 are those who trust God's anointed in Psalm 2. Let me say that again. Those who submit to God's Word in Psalm 1 are those who trust God's anointed in Psalm 2. And this is the lens we are to approach the rest 
of the Psalms. There is one who is greater than David, who is going to take on the wickedness of the world, the rage of the nations against God, and who has in fact defeated sin. He was appointed by the Father in eternity past to be king over all the earth. This is through what we call the covenant of redemption. God's own begotten Son providing refuge from God's wrath for all who go to Christ for salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones does a much better job summarizing Psalm 2. He said, It explains the vain, empty pursuits of those who rebel against God. While they dream and plan for a world of their own happiness, their attempts fall short because of their ignorance of God. God will judge their rebellion against Him, and His wrath will be fierce. But there is hope. The psalm, the psalmist speaks of deliverance that's echoed throughout the entire Bible. Hope is given in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So respond to Christ in submission and trust Him. See Him as your refuge. Now, Psalm 2 is normally divided into four sections. Your Bible probably has it spaced that way. Each part has three verses. We see the rebellion in verses 1 through 3, God's reaction in verses 4 through 6, and 7, verses 7 through 9, is the Father's promise to the Son. And then in 12, 10 through 12, there's an urgent plea to listen and for us to submit and trust Christ. That's how we're going to approach Psalm 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, the rebellion. That a wrong response. This is showing us a wrong response to God. David asks the question, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The world, the entire world, you go out there and you look, if you had the ability to look at the whole world at the same time, you would see that it is enraged against God. Now some may say this takes life a little too far. Those who don't worship God are, are raging against Him? Aren't they just fighting amongst themselves? They're not outwardly disrespecting God. Not that many people say things directly against God. Oh, yes, they do. Oh, yes, we do. This whole world is enraged against God. This world has been trying to throw off the rule of God ever since the fall in the garden. The world can't stand that there is a God who is ruler over them, that determines their life, that deserves their devotion and their worship. They are the ones who determine their life. They want to worship themselves 
not this God. The rulers of this world, they band together, they counsel together without ever considering God. They are actively and intentionally seeking a way to live without God. This psalm tells us that there is no way that humans can be good. The whole world is against God. The whole world, all nations and peoples are at war against God. The world wants to be free of God. Just look at how the world is constantly removing any reference to God. Paul makes it clear in Colossians 1.21, we were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We all come into this world with a preconceived notion and an attitude about ourselves and we want to rule ourselves. Any attempt to not give me what I want is an attack against me. Isn't that our attitudes? That's really an attack against Almighty God. Notice the kings and rulers, the nations and peoples are against God and His anointed. They are against Christ. They are plotting specifically against Christ. In verse 3, look with me please. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're saying, we don't want a Savior. We don't want His law. His words are meaningless to us. We don't want God telling us how to live. We know what's best for us. The psalm describes really the rebellion in the human heart against God. The righteous one in Psalm 1 is not wanted by the peoples and the rulers of the nations. While Psalm 1 tells us of a great blessing and happiness, of delighting in God's Word, this psalm should make us pause. This psalm should make us ask ourselves, do I want God's Word? Or do I want God to get out of my way? Do I feel caged in and bound by God? Or am I receiving Him as life-giving water? Am I committed to living life my way or am I submitting to God and His anointed? David is asking why the world rages. It's vain to go against God. It's senseless. It won't work. It's ridiculous to think that we can explain life without God, or that we can determine what's good and bad for us. That my life is somehow not under the rule of God. The scene then changes in verse 4. We go from the rebellion of the nations to the glorious throne room of Yahweh. There we see God's reaction, His view of the rebellion. And we see that this war is unequal. There's no comparison 
between the sides. In Plumer's commentary, he points to Rivet, who says it's like a fly attacking an elephant. Or you can think of it as lighting a match and then holding it under Niagara Falls, even if the match is waterproof, all that water is going to douse it out. It's going to be soaked. There is no chance for that match to stay lit. Too much. Too much power in that water. Now to be honest, God's reaction here is kind of scary. Now to be sure, God is a God of grace. We're going to see that at the end of the psalm. But please don't think for a moment that God ignores your reaction to Him. When you see the evil in the world, or maybe you haven't submitted to Him, and it appears like those against God are getting away with with it all, Calvin writes that God is not silent. He's not silent because He's weak or He doesn't care, Calvin says, but for the time, He would confront their insolence with quiet contempt. Just because God is not acting or speaking upon every sin, could it be he would confront insolence with quiet contempt? In other words, don't be deceived in thinking that it doesn't matter what you or others do against God. His silence means What's to come is worse than the justice you would receive in this life, in this world. We see that God doesn't tremble at people shaking their fists at Him. He doesn't add up His forces and compare what He has with theirs. He doesn't look anywhere to hide or anywhere to go for help. He doesn't even stand up from His throne. The scene in verse 4 is of God sitting on His throne and He laughs. And this is not a funny laugh. He sees what's going on as foolishness. Now the picture of God sitting on high up on His throne and, and laughing, don't, don't picture this as arrogance. The psalmist is telling us in terms that we can understand that it's laughable to think God is threatened or that He's not watching. Instead, God speaks. He holds them in derision. He ridicules them. He rebukes and terrifies them. And He says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. This is a reference to the covenant of redemption. God determined an eternity past to save. God has already determined the end. To speak means that God has made His will known. He tells of His appointment of His King and His King is on His hill. Think of King of the mountain. The one on the hill is the one who triumphs. This has already been determined. And notice, this is a king 
who is a king to all the other kings. It's the kings of the earth who are raging, and this king is king over them. This is the king of kings. And we know that this is Jesus Christ. We know that He's defeated enemies of God on the cross, sin and death. And in His resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, He has established His dominion forever over the earth. And what God demands from the nations is what He desires for His King. For Christ to have the same honor and glory as the Father. Throughout history, people have tried to tear down the idea that Christ is victorious. But nothing is going to stop Him from building His church or His kingdom from being established because it will never, ever be destroyed. God has chosen to make salvation through Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that anyone can do to change that. It is pointless to resist what God has already put in place. The King of Kings is on His holy hill. The two ways in Psalm 1 are made even clearer for us. The way of sinners results in wrath. A final judgment in which no one can stand. The way of the righteous is on Zion, God's holy hill where the king is. That's the way of the righteous. He is the way, the life, and the truth. It's hopeless to fight God. It's hopeless. Every fist raised against God will be used against the very people who are shaking them. Every mouth will be closed. The very one they have scorned will be the one who opposes them, and there will be nothing they can do. While it may look like those who oppose God are getting away with it today, that doesn't mean that what people do doesn't matter or it doesn't matter how they live god has already spoken he's already determined and in his own time his truth will make everyone realize what it means to make war against him god does reign and it is a holy reign and it is forever connected to the king of kings. Next, in verses 7 through 9, Christ is speaking here. This is where we say that it goes beyond David or any other king. Nowhere in the Old Testament is anything like this said of any of the kings. Yahweh says to his anointed, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. These words the Father spoke of Jesus at His baptism and again at the transfiguration. Jesus is referred to as God's only begotten Son, meaning He was never created. He is the same in nature and character as the Father. 
And as God's Son, He is eternal and has preeminence over all creation. This was promised in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. We sing this every year around Christmas time, celebrating Christ coming to earth, His first advent. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. The Father says to Jesus Christ in Psalm 2, verse 8, I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus Christ is our King. And His dominion goes to the ends of the earth. What a great encouragement to us who have been given the Great Commission. What a great encouragement for us who have been told to go to the nations. As we go, we're told Christ's kingdom is already there. We are His witnesses to the ends of the earth. All we're doing is calling His people home. People who've already been declared to be His. Everything has been placed under Jesus' feet. And while right now it may seem that not everything is subject to Him, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor and nothing is left outside of His control. Every person that God intends to be in His kingdom will be there. What a great motivation for us to go and tell the good news of Jesus Christ. What great encouragement to go and share this gospel of Christ, to make Christ known among the nations. It may seem like a huge task for us, but really, they are already His heritage. They are His possession. It is the will of the Father to give Christ His Son people from every tribe, every nation, and every language. We take the message of Christ and we proclaim the kingdom is here. The king has come. This is what Jesus himself said in Luke 17, verse 20 and 21. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And the king will come again one day. And all opposition to him will cease. Oh, that that would give us such motivation to be bold for Christ. The Father has promised the nations to the Son. May this church proclaim the gospel of Christ here at the pulpit, but also missionaries being sent out out there to the nations. Men and women of God who know that His kingdom goes to the ends of the earth. And it's His victory on the cross that Jesus rules and defeats His enemies. 
The psalmist says that they are like clay pots that shatter when dropped. Jesus has already won and he's gathering his people. This leads to the final section of the psalm. Verses 10 through 12. It's a plea to listen, to respond to Christ. Follow along, if you will, starting in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with Yahweh. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The psalmist invites us to be wise, to fear God, to see the error of being in opposition to God. And while His wrath is coming for those who refuse, the psalm ends with a gentle, loving call to turn from our rebellious ways. To turn to Christ for who He is. To love Him. To submit to His kingly rule. To go to Him for protection from judgment. To see Him as our refuge. This is God's grace to us. God is having mercy on us. At the end of this psalm, you and I are being told to make sure we're not among those who fight against God or who ignore Him. Be a people who serve Him in glad submission. We're being told to kiss the Son. This means to worship Him. It's an act of worship, to worship Christ, to honor Him and call Him our Lord. God the Father has made Jesus Christ, the Son, the way of salvation. Don't fight Him. Submit and rejoice that God has given Christ dominion forever. Take delight in Him. See that His Word is good for you and pointing you to Christ and that you're blessed. You're happy when you take refuge in Christ. Let's pray.